0: Hello everyone, thank you for tuning in to a very special episode of At Intellect. This episode is a bit different. It's also longer than my previous podcasts, mainly because it revolves around heavyweight topics like artificial intelligence, mental models, and decision-making, which require a good amount of time and patience to distill in. Today we have with us Abhinandan Shah, who is the author of the blog Mindfulness Index, where he writes about mental models, positive psychology, and professional growth, Professionally, Abhinandan works as a director of machine learning at a major British high street bank. So stay tuned for a fun but super insightful conversation with Abhinandan. Hey Abhinandan, thank you for being on At Intellect. Uh, I know we have been talking about this since a long time, but uh, finally you're here. And I am really looking forward to this conversation mainly because I really respect um what what do you do with with the newsletter and uh, basically the videos that you share on linkedin and probably your tweets as well they are very insightful very very informing and i really uh, look forward to you know learning more from you with with this conversation uh,
1: thank you for having me kinshuk uh, i uh, i think we've known each other from twitter and uh, you know this is where i'm, I'm i've met a lot of intellectually like-minded people, uh such as yourself. So um audience is everything for me. You know, that's uh the very reason for me to create some of these things is to make sure that I can share them with the world. So uh, very honored, very excited to to have this conversation.
0: Cool. Thanks a lot. Um yeah so uh before we jump into the main theme of episode um why don't we start with, you know, your journey, uh, probably your story starting from your early days at University of Pune and then going to caste business school and then, you know, professionally at Vodafone and Barclays. Uh,
1: yeah, sure. Uh, actually, it's a funny one because, you know, my journey at uni actually starts with a typical question that you would ask, uh, ask a teenager, right? Or a child for that matter. You know, you would say, what do you want to become when you grow up? And uh, I've always had the same answer since I grew up. And the answer was I wanted to be an astronaut or, you know, I wanted to do something with space. Uh, You know, growing up, I was obsessed with uh, things like Star Trek and all kinds of, you know, space uh, sci-fi genre. And, uh, you know, that sort of made me believe that I should do something in this field because that's probably one area where not a lot of people have uh, necessarily made their careers. So here I was, sat with my father, uh, you know, sort of trying to figure out uh, which branch of engineering am I going to go into? Because I always knew that I wanted to go into something technical, but ended up choosing computers, Uh, you know, after all the drama about uh, being an astronaut. I mean, I figured it out that I had to go into mechanical engineering, then take up this course, which will land me into aeronautics, and then this will kind of take me into avionics, etc. Uh, but turns out that you know uh, when I had a choice between computers and and mechanical, uh, I don't know what happened in that instance. But you know I basically I got into computer uh, engineering by accident. Uh, so here, here am I you know sort of going from an idealist uh, to all of the constraints around you know choosing a school and then having to make a decision in a really short while. Uh, you know gone from an idealist to a, to a realist. And then, as sort of, I grew into that phase. Uh, my early days of university exposed me to a lot of fun. You know, when I was at school, actually, way before I entered university, I was, uh, I was very, very familiar with computers. Um, yeah. I, I coded. You know, I did some stuff on computers when I was like, you know, 10 years old. And uh, uh, so, my early days were sort of spent wondering, you know what am I learning currently? And how is that applicable to what I'm going to learn about computers, right? So you have first year of engineering is all about uh, mixed things like applied yeah. science, uh, applied mechanics, and so on. And I just like couldn't make sense of it. Like how is that relevant to computer science? Uh, but I think engineering is, uh, it teaches you a lot. I think it helps you transition from uh, being taught to actually learning on your own. Yes. Um, it teaches you to improvise, it teaches you to, um, it, you know, for the very first time, you're faced with diversity of uh, of friends, you know, people coming from all over the place. Um, and, and, and that was like really, really, uh, I, I feel that the whole setup was much more of a learning experience. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uni was fun, uh, great fun. I was one of the first people to get placed on campus, uh, you know, in the year that I graduated. And uh, I was picked up by a bank and I had had not even dreamed of this, right? You know, you you don't study computer science and, you know, uh, and remember this is way before iPhone. iPhone was launched, I think, in 2007 and I graduated in 2005. So this was before iPhone, before Facebook was as big as it is today. Uh, And, uh, you know, incredibly... um, I never had any idea as to which sector I wanted to work in, but I got picked up by a bank, and it was fantastic. You know, I got an opportunity to go abroad, uh, work in the U.S., uh, spend some time in New York, spend some time in Canada, uh, and and learn all about this big beautiful world of payments. Uh, and 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 you know, so from that point onwards, uh, you know, it was just the the opportunities opened up, um, mm-hmm. learning lots of different things. I was trying trying to become a specialist. I was trying to become a generalist by exposing myself to uh, things like front-end development, you know, back-end development, uh, architecture design, customization—you name it. You know, middleware. Um, I got, uh, and I kind of attacked every opportunity I got, which was really helpful for me uh, because that sort of gave me my next opportunity uh, with Barclays, and when Barclays was like in the expansion mode at that time setting up new businesses in the, in the, in the Africa, in the Middle East, Southeast Asia. So when I joined, uh, it was a very small group of people in India and, and it was just a lot of fun because I got to travel around the world. Uh, I worked in places that you will not even imagine, um, okay. Nairobi in Kenya, for example, or some other places in Southeast Asia. Um, I yeah. learned how to fill up ATM machines and it was just you know so diverse and that is when I got really interested into how business actually works because when you experience things like this, you know, it just it just expands your expands your horizon and expands your perspective. Um, so I decided, you know, like all most other uh, Indian IT uh, fraternity, I decided I said, well, I've got to take up an MBA. Um, okay. I'll be honest with you, like you know, I did not really know what I was getting into. But, uh, uh, but, you know, when I researched, when I started really getting into it, I visited a lot of these forums like, you know, like people do uh, right now, uh, or, you know, they've been doing forever, I guess, when they get into MBA. and then you need to attack these essays, you need to attack the GMAT, um, mm-hmm. and that sort of opened a new world of possibilities in itself. So, I'd made up my mind, I got this beautiful invite from a university in the U.S so my boss said why don't you just move to london and then figure it out you know whether you can take up a indicative course and i said well that sounds really nice because you know here here i was i was probably going to get an mba but if i get a job straight away i thought that i could shortcut my way uh into a career and take up the mba at the same time so that felt like an opportunity i couldn't refuse um so i i took it and and i was i landed in london 2011 um during my MBA, I, I mean, I, I, normally I love to network with people. So uh, I was having a drink with someone. Um, I don't drink, by the way, but I just went there to have a Coke and just okay. talk to people because that's how people socialized in, uh, in, 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 in the UK or many other places for that matter. And, mm-hmm. and I got to meet with some uh, an Italian person who offered me a chance to uh, to go from technology into into a hundred percent sort of commercial growth, and and I got into this uh, sort of product management discipline uh, with him, and then rest is history because we created a number of products, um, and before you know it, you know I was there in London for about seven years. Uh, in my last stint, actually, I was with Vodafone, looking at their at uh, a uh, uh, device analytics product which had like 10 million users. And a different uh, product called as MyVodafone, which is your servicing app, which had uh, okay. 44 million users across the world. Uh, that was pretty big because every other week, again, I would be in a new country in Europe, um, trying to solve, trying to solve uh, for things like adoption, engagement. You know, uh, creating blueprints for countries like Egypt, for example, to implement in their user base it was a lot of fun and i really really enjoyed my job at vodafone uh, but it was unfortunately short lived primarily because you know i was uh, my son was born he had some health issues uh, and okay. then i was in london my wife and i were working and we decided that it was probably uh, the right time for us to move back and and you know even though vodafone offered me an opportunity i decided to come back to banking because india I say, is a completely different ball game when it comes to telecom industry right uh, so that's how I landed, and you know, when I landed here, uh, I did not know head or tail about machine learning, but I was I was given an op bit, but I I, I was very familiar with data. I was very mm-hmm. familiar with in you know using data to create value in my products that I that I used to sell and create. Um, so machine learning was a very powerful tool to to actually do that for for a lot of different parts of the business, and I found that. Opportunity really exciting to start from scratch, mm. and, and I did. And, and I think we ended up uh, we ended up uh, you know building a, a beautiful team, which I have the pleasure of leading today uh, for Barclays. So yeah, that, that's that's a that's a journey. I'm not sure if that was very uh, very long for you, Kinshuk.
0: No, no, no. Such an inspiring story. I think I think I think that's great. From from you know the early thoughts of being an astronaut uh, you know, ended up ending up at, at, uh, banking, heading there machine learning and artificial intelligence. Uh, I think that that's great. So, Abhinandan, if I, if I may ask you that, um, like, like your initial dream of being an astronaut. So at times, do you feel that, you know, if you, uh, would have pursued mechanical engineering and would have been like taken that pathway. Like things would have been different. Like you were, you would be probably in a in a spaceship uh, designed by SpaceX or NASA, uh, looking out for Mars, life in Mars.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, you know something, uh, Kinshuk. I think that uh, that question haunts me uh, even today, uh, in a in a nice way, right? I mean, it's. Uh, what I've learned after spending 15 years in various jobs and roles and 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 doing things, and uh, my life experience so far has been that you never completely roll out anything because mm-hmm. uh, you know it's a there are extremely random and extremely unpredictable paths that your life can take you where you really want to go. Um, okay. space and and space was a childhood dream for me just to elaborate maybe a couple of small anecdotes you know I had built with my father a telescope uh, at home like by literally like grinding the lens and, and then uh, wow. seeing the rings of Saturn for the very first time by something that you've built with your hands you know, has sort of an indelible impression of on on you, right? Like as a as a child, and you know, with that, and and I was I was part of this uh, inter university center for astronomy and astrophysics in in Pune, which is a very well known organization. I I visited to this uh, radio one of the largest at that time. It was the largest radio telescope, uh, you know, in the world uh, mm-hmm. near Narayanpur. It it was uh, called as GMRT Giant Meter Wave Radio Telescope. So, and I met the chief scientist there. Some some of these things kind of have a mesmerizing effect on you, inspiring you. But what I realized is that, you know, there is not one path to get there. And, and you know, that that is even more clear. It was not clear to me before, but it's clearer to me now. And if you look at SpaceX, um, you know, for that matter, right, Elon Musk had got nothing to do with space. I mean, yeah, yeah. Jeff Bezos. I mean, it's, it's, it's idiotic and stupid to compare myself to any of those kind of legends. But I would, I would say that if they could have such a massive impact, maybe I can have at least a tiny impact in that field when the timing is right. So I don't give up on that dream. Um, and I try to inspire my son. Uh, we are building a telescope now, right, for my four-year-old. Wow. probably too young for that. But, uh, but hey, you know, the dream continues
0: yeah i think i think that's that's great um and probably to fulfill your dreams you can you know i think sign up for the first flight to mars or whenever like space travel becomes a thing um yeah
1: cool it's funny i didn't tell you this that i get pork sick a lot so you know i might have to take my chances with that one
0: <laughs> okay <laughs> awesome cool so uh moving on um so basically you're currently heading uh the machine learning uh, department for the enterprise data platforms at Barclays. Um, one thing I really wanted to ask you is, and I, I'm personally also curious about it. Uh, like, yeah, what excites you the most about how you know AI and ML are doing to transform the world of of financial markets?
1: Yeah, uh, sure. I, I think that's a really good question because you know. My brush with AI is uh, is is not. I mean, I'm not a data scientist, like cards on the table. Okay. But I'm not new to AI. So I uh, when I was graduating, actually, I uh, one of my core electives was AI. This was way before you know AI became uh, sexy or you know, AI became so exciting. Mm-hmm. And at that time, you know, uh, you could do things like. For example, uh, you know, do I mean, there used to be a a chatbot uh, that we used to play with in in school. I can't remember what it's called now, but uh, essentially, you know, you can ask it quirky questions and it'll come back with with some uh, answers which wouldn't really seem like they're scripted, but it was pretty damn good at that time, right? And, uh, you know, if you look at it now, uh, I think now AI has sort of come up come of age. I mean, I, I still think that we are in a very nascent stage, but a few things that really hit hard um, for me is some recent developments, you know, especially in the area of, uh, of uh, you know, language modeling, for example, is probably one place where I feel like, you know, we've made a, a huge amount of progress where, you know, you could just give a sample sentence to a to a model you know built with billions in some cases with trillions of parameters, and it mm-hmm. can construct a completely cogent and intelligent piece of writing for you. I think that's just next level. Uh, it has its it has its kinks uh, mm-hmm. but but I think you know that sort of gpt three uh, the open AI uh, gpt three I think is is a fabulous example of where AI state of the art is right now. Uh, but also, you know, on the other side, you have, uh, you have reinforcement learning, right? So if you look at sort of machine learning, I mean, AI is much broader, you've got machine learning, which is a smaller subset of that, um, which mm-hmm. is where most of the advances are to be fair. But within that, you have supervised learning, unsupervised, and then you have reinforcement learning. Most of the practical applications, whether it's in banking, finance, or any other industry for that matter, you know, is most of the bulk sits in supervised learning, right? So you, um, you give this machine learning model some data, it figures mm-hmm. out a set of rules, and you give it some unseen data, and then it tells you what, uh, what prediction is. Um, Netflix recommendation system, for example, is a good example of supervised learning. But I think the exciting parts of AI are now coming into play where, you know, unsupervised learning is, uh, is, is, is taking it to the next level. Um, for example, I think uh, you know recognizing images. For example, uh, and I I think literally yesterday, I think it was Facebook AI, uh, you know, which is I think there is an organization called as FAIR Fair or Facebook AI Research, which came up with this model where there are agents which are essentially reinforcement learning agents which watch videos for hours and then they learn uh, learn about uh, the world and very similar to how kids these days learn about stuff from youtube these uh, <clears throat> these programs actually run on their own and i think you know we are going to see something really cool stuff coming out of that now within the unsupervised space and in the reinforcement learning space where you've got advances like alpha go or you know you have uh, some of these seemingly intelligent game right i mean we have chess playing ai for ages now but chess is a fairly logical game there are only a certain set of Combinations, but where you you require instinct, where you require uh, so reinforcement learning plays. Uh, and, and there is a really good example with OpenAI, for example. There is there is hide and seekers. So imagine like two computer agents playing hide and seek with each other, and yeah. the intelligence evolves enough to to actually you know create obstacles so that the seekers cannot uh, you know cannot uh, find the other set of agents. And more interestingly. Uh, the seekers actually hide the ladders and the blocks from the other people so that they cannot create obstacles. So you see, like really intelligent behavior coming out from that. And I think that, you know, we're just, we're just getting started on that. But I think that we, uh, you know, I am sort of on the, on the Elon Musk uh, spectrum of AI. I feel like, you know, we are dealing with something that is uh, that has got the potential to, to, to go into uh, that sort of, uh, You know, trajectory where it can actually be sometimes a little dangerous. Even the open AI models that are there right now, the language models are quite dangerous for things like fake information, you know, fake news, uh, propaganda, etc., etc. Right? Uh, But coming back to your original point, I think your state of the art uh, for AI in finances is is very nascent, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at finance industry, they've been using analytics for ages. I mean, at the end of the day. We're not talking about general AI. We're not talking about reinforcement learning, like I said before, or unsupervised learning. We're mostly talking about supervised learning, kind of machine learning, and which is essentially not very different from statistical analytics that has been carried out for ages. With that sort of background, if you look, uh, what's happening is most of the applications are are uh, revolving around improving customer experience, making things that are already better. Right? So I talked about risk. Reducing fraud, for example, um, and 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 some of the newer applications are taking a leaf out from the tech industry, such as improving customer experience. You know, creating various recommendation systems, um, mm. or or you know, reducing uh, when you have like arduous manual processes. That you've deployed some sort of automation, straight through processing. Uh, then you want to use AI to reduce human intervention. So learn patterns from you know what sort of things are causing exception in that in that process. Like for example, um, you know signing off a particular identity document, and when you're screening for these, sometimes they come for exception management. So how do you automate that? How do you prevent manual exceptions? Uh, you know as much as possible. Um, and and of course you know there is a lot of work to be done on customer insights as well. So I think this area excites me a lot just to just to let you know, you know, I haven't worked that much on the market side, right? So I've spent most nice. of my time on corporate and and retail side of the business, so I, I understand mm-hmm. them a little bit better. Uh, but I can tell you that uh, I can tell you that there are a lot of applications in in customer insight, meaning what? Uh, and this is not specific to banking, is can you actually a lot of the traditional wisdom on customers is actually segment driven, right? So essentially saying, well, yeah. you know, Abhi and Kinshuk belong to a particular demographic, um, mm-hmm. therefore they must behave similarly. The reality could not be further from, uh, you know, further from that, right? Because, because in reality, uh, people are really different. Every person is different, and uh, you know, by using AI and machine learning, you can actually mm-hmm. begin to encapsulate that. You know, you could, you could use uh, you know customer data points in a privacy friendly manner i mean i'm not talking by the way specific to barclays because um, because that won't be right uh, but you know in general in the industry the trend is to to utilize and make customer service better by by giving better recommendations better product offerings um, customizing menus which is not extremely dissimilar to what tech companies are doing uh, mm-hmm. but i think even even making things that have been traditionally done Better, uh, I think is are the areas that are immediately being transformed. Uh, But Kinshuk, I would add one thing that machine learning, particularly, is very similar uh, and uh, to databases, right? Ben Evans, right? One of the leading Mm ex-VCs now from A16Z made this comparison in, in his blog for the very first time. He said. Well, AI is not, uh, you know, AI is one of those technologies which is foundational in nature. When databases came, you know, airline reservations never looked you know, the same again, right? Same again, same, yeah. Or banking never looked the same again. Similarly, with AI, you can apply AI in absolutely everything, and I don't, I don't mean that like in a flippant way. Like literally, you can apply AI everywhere. Mm-hmm. I think the challenge with with finance or the you know industry is that. Uh, your people's money is at stake, so you have to be really conservative in terms of your risk appetite. You have to consider privacy. You have to go slow and take your time and do things in customer interest. Uh, mm-hmm. you, uh, for example, we cannot do things with data, for example, that the tech companies uh, do uh, you know, in finance. Uh, I think some of those things we have to bear in mind, but I think the, the potential upside is just uh, unlimited, man
0: yeah yeah interesting i think i think the way um ai like in general terms uh is improving you know various sectors of of uh mainly financial industry like starting from customer service with their chatbots, or probably risk assessment while while uh performing lending practices um or oh, yeah as you said that you know personalizing service services for customers i think i think that's great and i think because uh, the financial like the penetration of ai is is still at the nascent stages there is a lot of disruption yet to happen um so i think yeah it, it'll, it'll be an interesting evolution uh, going forwards
1: yeah absolutely i mean uh, what i see happening is if you I mean, you still have data developers, right? Yeah. Databases, Databases have, been, have been around since 1960 uh, and mm-hmm. now you have data scientists. Um, yes. You And by the way, we've had modelers since my career started or even before that, just yeah, that yeah. the languages and the tools were different. So I think some of those jobs are here to stay, some of those uh, tools are here to stay, but what would change is uh, how widespread they are. Um, I mean, database is no longer considered, for example, a a niche skill, right? It's something that every computer uh, engineer, for example, or somebody who's good with technology, should know what they are, how they work. Uh, AI probably would go in in a similar way, uh, and it'll it'll become easier and easier. Like with already with the advent of things like auto ML, um, you know, the the actual modeling skill is less important. Um, mm-hmm. The skill of integrating various things in a process. For example, how would you take a model and then deploy that within, uh, within your current application stack to make things better without sort of losing control and, and giving a massive upside, maybe efficiency with regards to compute or, or something completely different is what's going to change the game. Uh, I feel it's, it's not going to be uh, like self-driving cars or you know, something that is that fancy. Who knows? But, you know, maybe with general AI, we might see something completely different.
0: Yep. Yep. Yeah, very interesting. Um, Awesome. Cool. So, now let's move to the main focus of the episode. um, Mental models. So, uh, like mental models is a term which I think I got introduced to by you. I am not, I I don't really remember if I've heard or read about, um, this before um so you you are a uh europe aware of of uh this term and um, you know you i've read it probably somewhere in your newsletter and also you tweet a lot about it um can you briefly define mental models for the audience
1: yeah sure um that, that's that's one of the areas that i feel very passionate about Uh, I'll tell you, right, I mean, I think the, there's no textbook, there must be a textbook definition, but uh, for me, it is a, you know, in a complex situation, Mm -hmm. you know, life throws you a lot of complex situations, work throws you a lot of complex situations. Um, Imagine that, you know, you're caught in a power play at work, you know, somebody is not... uh, Somebody is not relenting, or somebody is being difficult with you, and then you cannot get your way, and and you know you have very limited control, very limited choices in that situation. Imagine that you are in that part of the situation. Um, for most people, they don't even know how to think about it. You know, forget about sort of dealing with that situation. You know, they don't even know how to think about it because they neither have the experience. Um, which is why you know I think uh, we'll talk about sort of wisdom and mental models in a bit, but you know once people try to even appreciate the situation, what they realize is that they have no reference of uh, you know they have no reference there's no book that says, if you're in such kind of a difficult situation, you know this is how you deal with it. By the yeah. time, you know, even if there were a book, you know, by the time you read that book, the situation is sort of, you know, gone, right? And you've yeah. lost the opportunity to do something with it. So uh, for me, the mental model is kind of in a complex situation, thinking on your feet and, and responding, responding to that situation uh, with some really practical frameworks, you know, and that, are, that are second nature to you, that you don't have to think about it, um, mm-hmm. the closest approach that I will give you is heuristics right so heuristics are essentially um, thumb rules they are uh, they're like you know if, if you were in so just to kind of continue talking about the example that that uh, we have I think you know the thumb rule would be to figure out in that difficult situation what is the power equation and whoever has got the highest possibility of actually changing that situation and then connecting with that person at a human level and trying to figure it out, um, you know, no matter how difficult that conversation is, would be a natural choice. But most people don't know that how to even approach something like this, right? So yeah. for me, mental models are, are, uh, are an encapsulation of, of many different concepts, many different ideas into something practical that you can use in a complex situation, right? to derive a particular outcome. So that's how I would, uh, I would define mental model.
0: Awesome. So uh, can we, can we take it as a, as a human playbook of dealing with uh, difficult situations?
1: Yeah. I mean, yes, it's, it's, it's similar to a playbook, but it's like, it's there in your head, you know, it's second nature to you. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, a a mental model on a paper is completely useless, but a mental model, when you internalize it, becomes uh, an asset to you. Um, It's like, just to give you an example, maybe we've just talked about AI. If you teach um, a computer to recognize Kinshuk as a person, every time you upload a picture, it will know how to find you. Mm-hmm. Right, it has kind of built in a set of rules within within its memory or wherever you know within the model, and then it recognizes who you are, and we call it a model, right? Yeah. But it's a it's a machine learning model. In this case, what we're talking about is a model as well as a set of rules in your head that you can apply fast, right? And uh, and I mean I did not know this term either, but many years ago actually I read this book called as uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by uh, yeah, Dan Canyon. by one of the yeah, Dan. I mean, it's a it's a gem of a book, uh, yeah. and a mental model would classify in his terminology as part of the fast thinking processes. Right? When you're applying mm-hmm. a mental mental model to a situation, difficult or not, right? Um, you don't have to think. You know, practically, it will come to you, um, and and you can just use it by all means. You know, it doesn't mean that you know you, you know you are suddenly this kind of uh, a smart uh, cookie that will res- that will have an answer for every situation. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm mm-hmm. saying is it's an incredibly helpful asset to use uh, in a situation when you're faced with uh, uh, with the challenges, with uh, opportunities. Sometimes, mm-hmm. but in- mental models are incredibly helpful. They just I, I, for me, right. Another way of describing mental models could be they will they will tell you how to think about something, how to approach. Something mentally. What's the framework? How should I think about this? Uh, you know, a new job. How should I think about uh, a new opportunity? For example, could be a mental model for for many people. Uh, so yeah, that's how I would uh, I would
0: articulate. Cool. Uh, perfect. Yeah, I, I I think I think you touched base upon upon this uh, in your answer. But yeah, something I really wanted to ask you is. So, is it a similar, like a similar mechanism, like how you train um, kind of a machine learning model, in which you give them a set of data that you already have, and then they they build a certain uh, they build certain set of par- parameters, and then they assess the you know, data that you throw at it, and if it's true or false according to that model so is it the is it the same way you build uh, mental models in your in your real life like based on your past experiences based on your thought process based on your values or it's, it's i think
1: that's a no no i think that's a that's a million dollar question right primarily because uh, not everyone learns the same way but there are some commonalities in uh, in you know, human learning right and how our brains uh, learn actually and i would say that you know we learn through our experiences um and uh, i'm actually currently writing a, a post on how sometimes we create artificial constraints when we are approaching any situation and how that can be detrimental to our progress uh, but just to give you a, a quick uh, anecdote from that Mm-hmm. you know when uh, when we go through certain experiences we learn uh, we learn from them right so for example, um, this is just just imagine like hypothetical scenario that somebody has just gone through a retrenchment or they 've gone through a redundancy exercise at work mm-hmm. that 's an incredibly hard thing that can happen to anyone right and you 've gone mm-hmm. through that um, now imagine that you know you've seen uh, you 've seen this time and again you know maybe happening to your colleagues or maybe you're a you're a manager and you've had to do that n a number of times. Um, you learn from that. So you learn, for example, what led to that outcome. You learn, for example, um, you know, well, could that have been avoided? Or you learn, for example, that, you know, even though I've gone through this tremendously difficult challenge, I actually came out stronger. Um, so if you just take that last part, right, which is, Somebody having gone through a traumatic experience, such as losing someone uh, you know near to them, or actually having lost their job, would learn from that experience um, and build that mental model that I am stronger than that. And that is how we learn. And and you know, possibly you know, if you if you're a if you're a line manager at work, for example, you know, you're dealing with a lot of people every day. Yeah. You will come across recurring patterns of people issues. Absentism, for example, or you know, career progression approaches and how people uh, approach promotions and how sometimes you have people who feel entitled to a promotion versus how there are people who will actually perform at a level incredibly hard, mm-hmm. you know, and then it sort of becomes a no brainer to promote them. So, when, yeah. once you go through a lot of these experiences with people, you will build mental models that, you know, how should a promotion work? What is the right way for a promotion to work? And then it becomes second nature to you. So, uh, you know, that's how we we learn. Uh, machine learning is, I mean, it, it would be, it, one, only one thing that is common is, you know, you feed outcomes to a machine learning model, and then it learns from that outcome. Um, experience is not quite same as an outcome. Uh, But, you know, essentially outcome is part of an experience, right? So it is not very, I mean, remember that entire field of machine learning is sort of modeled on human brain and how it learns, right? So uh, actually drawing references from ML into kind of figuring out human psychology is quite interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, 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 But, you know, there is some method to the madness there, Uh, I feel that, you know, ultimately uh, uh, is the recurring experiences or very strong experiences that will allow you to build those mental models. Not everybody goes through that experience. It's like, for example, uh, a job loss is not something that everyone goes through. Yeah. But if there are models to be shared from people that have gone through that experience, how incredible would that be? I think, you know, that's, uh, uh, that's one of my goals, right? Is to kind of try and... Uh, Try and codify that uh,
0: as much as possible. Interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, as you said, that you know, not not everyone goes to the same through the same set of experiences. Uh, but but do you think that everybody, either knowingly or in or in hindsight, has some? fundamental models built into their system and they are using it even though they don't say that, you know, it's a mental model. It could be a framework or just their thought process, knowingly or unknowingly. Yeah,
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, even though you don't call them, uh, I mean, uh, I've written a a big uh, post about this, but I'll I'll, I'll tell you a quick summary of Mm -hmm. how I think about it, right?
0: Yeah.
1: There are beliefs. Okay. Okay. Uh, and beliefs are again, you know, beliefs can be extrinsic in the sense that you read a book, you read Atomic Habits by James Clear, for example, and you know that, you know, if I keep a, if I keep a, a bottle of water on my desk, I will mm-hmm. remember to drink water. Simple as that, right? It's an extrinsic uh, stimulus that you've received, and now now you know that has kind of come into your uh, uh, belief uh, system, or you believe in in God. That 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 may be something that your parents taught you. Um, but at you know that's kind of the building block, right? Experiences is a building block. Belief is a building block. stimulus is a building block as well. Uh, you know, and then on top of this, you know, you may have certain aspirations. Um, like for example, I said I, I said to you earlier that you know may, I wanted to do something in space where did that come from you know as i said before it was actually a excuse me it was a result of all of my experiences but there are aspirations there are beliefs there is there is value system as well right so you have um i mean and, and value system also is a result of experiences you have to see um just to give you an example right one of the core values for me is actually developing others and How I realized that is how incredibly happy I feel when I'm with someone that, you know, could learn from my years or my experiences, you know, and not make the same mistakes that I did or actually benefit, you know, get promoted maybe based on uh, maybe just a small contribution that I had uh, during a mentoring session that makes me incredibly happy. There are very few things. If you actually make a list of things that truly make you happy, mm-hmm. there are very, very few things, and it, it, goes, it goes down to like a few set of values that believe. And, and the opposite is also true, right? If you're not mm-hmm. able to help someone, for example, in my case, that makes me incredibly disturbed as well. Similarly, so that value system has to be understood uh, understood very well. So there is beliefs, there is values, there is you know sort of external things you, you, you understand. And, and, you know, they will cumulatively add to, uh, you know, what, what you would see as the, as mental models. So in my, in my head, you know, I think that uh, there is a hierarchy of these things, you know, experiences, beliefs, um, you know, nature, nurture, I believe there are some genetic factors. You know, if you look at the psychology 101, mm-hmm. you know, we, we all have traits like neuroticism. You know, you have the big five traits as they're called in psychology, right? It's, yeah. uh, you know, how how acceptable something is to you, for example, is one of the traits as well, agreeability for you, it's called as. So, uh, all of these traits are also influenced by experiences. Beliefs are influenced by experiences. Your values are influenced by experiences as well. But yeah. all of these actually contribute to, to mental models uh, and all of us have mental models, we just don't call them mental models, and mm-hmm. we don't necessarily think of them as building blocks just to answer your question more specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that is what I am trying to do is to be more explicit about it. All of us have i mean in in sort of um in slang, you know you would call them fundas, right, or yeah, like for example, you may have a funda that says you know if I'm late consistently to a meeting, you know. I don't trust that person. Whoever is turning up late to a particular meeting, you may have that funder. But essentially, it's a mental model, you know, uh, right? So, yeah, I think I agree with you. There is no explicit label on it, but, yeah, there are building blocks and then there are mental models uh, that everybody has.
0: Yeah, very interesting. I think, uh, I think, primarily focusing on experiences, probably, as as you mentioned, an example, right, in which, uh, let's say you got uh, laid off from a job or, you know, you you probably, s- you have seen it first-handedly or, or, uh, and experienced yourself. Probably if that stuff happens again, you won't be that uh, broken down or you'll probably yeah. um, take that uh, negative experience in a different way uh, compared to earlier yeah. because there's some kind of mental model that, that has already formed uh in your yeah. brain somewhere and, and that how to handle that adversity
1: uh, sorry that's the that's the primary um that's the primary reaction perhaps is that you know you next time you face something like that you know you would be better prepared and you would probably be less scared of it having said that yeah. there are secondary effects as well right is that uh you learn that i'm a stronger person than i am mm-hmm. and you ask anyone right you know take Satya Nadella, for example, you know, is, uh, uh, he's had extremely traumatic uh, experiences you know with his children, uh, yeah. having gone through that. And he talks about, in his biography, for example, how that has shaped him as a person. And yeah. you know, anybody, you take anyone for it, uh, and you know we you know a lot of people around us, um, some of these experiences actually teach you a lot. So I think there are secondary, sometimes tertiary effects of that. Uh, mm-hmm. as well, which sometimes are not always positive, right? You might turn out to be an extremely, extremely um, strong person, mm-hmm. but maybe your resilience gets affected negatively. And that, again, I would say, you know, uh, is dependent on your, uh, on your value system. It it depends a lot on the support that you get, uh, yeah. you know. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's a fairly complex, it's a fairly complex, uh, it's a fairly complex uh,
0: So, yeah. Yep. Got it. Awesome. So uh, moving on. Yeah, probably one of of my favorite questions of this episode. Um, So your Twitter banner has a quote, which has always intrigued me every time I I read it. Um, So it goes something like this, that there's no such thing as wisdom, only mental models. Can you double down on this, please, and uh, explain like what it exactly means?
1: Yeah. Uh, so actually, this is uh, this is actually born from my own set of experiences, you know, and and some of my friends, like my, my wife, uh, for example. Mm-hmm. And uh, and speaking of my wife, you know, she wanted to become a a neurologist, you know, a brain surgeon for that matter, I don't, God knows why, don't ask me why, uh, okay. you know, probably something very similar to me, right, which is uh, I wanted to become an astronaut. So, uh, and we, we joke about this sometimes that, you know, we've always had this, uh, this thing where, and then she said, well, I, I would have loved to do something in consulting, but she ended up being consulted. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we always say that perhaps we should have had the right sort of guidance at stages in our life when we needed it, uh, right from choosing a career to, mm-hmm. for example, when we when you get when you decide to get married, yeah, right. Timing uh, is important. Uh, some people, uh, you know, have various conditions that they put on themselves that you know when I reach X income in my life, I'm going to get married. Or some people say, well. When my, when my elder brother gets married, you know, I'm going to get married. Yeah. And all of those are like completely uh, baseless or there is no evidence to support that, you know, any of those things are actually the right sort of constraints, you know, before you should get married. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody who's actually gone through the experience will give you a much better account of how some of those things are irrelevant when you're considering getting married. You would talk to your friends, you'd probably get some insight, but you'd have to talk to a large section of people uh, in order to kind of gain that perspective, so that you don't have to go through the pain that, for example, Dipika and I went through before we got married, and you know, by the way, we dated each other for like ten years before we got married, and okay. uh, and 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 you know, it was an incredibly difficult decision. We wish that somebody gave us this gyan you know, somebody gave us this wisdom, and. Okay. Uh, I feel like there is no resource available on the internet that is so generic. Well, you can Google stuff, but there is no resource that is so generic uh, that can allow you to actually easily go and search the kind of uh, insights that you really want from a decision, from a situation, a challenging, difficult situation. And uh, I feel like that is what wisdom is, right? When -hmm. you get married, you're wiser. But it's too late because we've already gone through that pain before. So just to kind of play on that is, uh, is, you know, uh, learn from the wise uh, by actually being able to codify some of their mental models. You know, they say that as you grow older, you get wiser. I don't think that's further from reality. You know, just your experiences, your experiences grow Mm -hmm. and you become wiser. And in effect, you actually have more mental models, you know, that you can count on. Uh, they work for you. Sometimes they don't, but, you know, more often than not, they will work for you and you'll be a, you'll be a wiser, more
0: happier person. Yeah, that's interesting. I think, yeah, you know, doubling down on, on uh, what we discussed previously. So, um, like you said that, you know, if you want to uh, assess what's the right right time to get married, I think you should talk to people who uh, got married earlier to you to, to, Because they know better than you. So I think in in hindsight, when they got married and the, you know, the situations that they faced before, during, and after that, it, uh, like a mental model got created in them, which now is trained to assess like, okay, you know, these were the problems that I faced when I, you know, took that big step of getting married. And these were the good things. These were the bad things. These... With the things that you can improve upon, so that's when they can advise yeah. to somebody. So, yeah, I yeah, think and funny
1: thing is, funny thing is, you know, at that point, you're not convinced by some of the answers you get, right? Like, yeah. So, somebody might, might tell you, Hey, you don't have to think about it so much, you know, just get married when you're ready. Like, what the hell is that supposed to mean, right? And, uh, yeah. you know, for some people, might that that might be enough, you know, like, yeah, we are in love, yeah. you know, you get married. But uh, for others, you know, it's incredibly complex. Uh, yeah. So,
0: and probably, probably if, yeah, somebody who's, who gives that advice probably thought about a lot of things when they, when they were getting married. And later they realized that, you know, it was not, not very useful because nothing, nothing of the affairs or nothing of what they thought at that time turned out to be true. And they were just thinking in vain. So probably that that advice they will give to somebody who is now you know thinking about marriage. That's that's very interesting. Awesome. I think so. Yeah. Now uh moving on to um your newsletter, which I'm a big fan of. Uh I I try to read it every now and then I, I get time. Uh it's called Mindfulness Index. Yeah. Um Yeah, before we dive dive into it, I just wanted to ask that. Um, you know, apart from everything you do at work and and, and everything else, uh, like what motivated you to, you know, start that newsletter and was it like something you always wanted to do Uh, or, you know, there was like something happened, you read something, you, or you listened something and you thought that, you know, I need to write my thoughts, spend down my thoughts and get it out to the world.
1: Yeah. I, I'll be honest, right? I am still figuring it out. You know, it's not, uh, I have a few hundred subscribers um, Mm -hmm. and uh, specifically if you ask me how I started thinking about it is when I actually started writing more seriously. Uh, And, you know, that was sort of when uh, maybe about a year ago, I started writing more seriously. I mean, before that, I used to write for myself. I still write for myself but uh, when you actually when i when i said when i say that i'm writing seriously it goes back to the previous point we were talking about around if you have a set of mental models to share with people and that's the goal of this like so my goal is to be the most comprehensive resource on mental models but you know something that is much more you know compressed practical and I'm also thinking that, you know, I'm kind of focusing on the professional aspects right now because, you know, otherwise it's going to be too broad. Um, okay. And when I, when, I, when I first sort of tried to think about how this can be useful to people is when more people see it, more people read it. And mm-hmm. um, there are only two ways or three ways to go out there on the internet, right? So you have, of course, social media. And social media is like a rented car, right? I mean, it's... Uh, it's not yours uh, and and you know, you can't keep your audience tomorrow twitter decides to remove a few 100000 followers if you have them yeah. um, then uh, you know you can't do anything about it you can't there's no way to reach those people back again so mm. i think that uh, having uh, having an email list uh, or ha- you know e- uh, having a newsletter that is backing that email list is incredibly helpful to 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 have a direct connection with your Audience, that's number one reason I started uh, started. So when I first started to think about the blog and, and and its purpose, it dawned on me that I cannot be dependent on on newsletters. Of course, it was not original advice. I think every content creator will tell you that it's very widely. It's one of the widely available mental models out there that people talk yeah. about very very thoroughly. Uh, so it wasn't an original thought, but it makes a lot of sense. So I started it. Uh, I've experimented my fair a bit with newsletters uh, like but you know initially when I started it I was I was doing it weekly it turned out to be a lot of work right so I was spending more time doing newsletters than, than I was spending on writing for example so now I've resorted to more of a, a fortnightly uh, frequency and and uh, mixing it up with videos and mm-hmm. I mean the, the goal is to reach as many people as possible. But also keep it interesting. So I've experimented with formats, et cetera. Um, so for me, it's an opportunity to regularly connect with my audience and mm-hmm. to keep my audience independent of any of uh, any of social media platforms. I think that's how I uh, I would describe uh, newsletters. I mean, it's amazing when, like, you know, like out of hundreds of people that I send it to every every other week. I'm just amazed by sometimes you know people responding to me and saying, hey, this is actually making a difference to my life. So honestly, if there yeah. are like out of whatever 500 people, you know, if four people found it, made it made some difference to their lives, that's like makes my day, right? You know, it makes my writing worthwhile. Uh, but who yeah. knows? I mean, uh, I'm not writing. I'm not hoping that suddenly it's going to be like thousands and thousands of people. That's one of the reasons why I'm not on Substack. You know, you could be a lot better with Substack because there is a dedicated sort of discovery mechanism, etc. So I've kept it uh, organic as of now, but who knows? That might change.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's interesting. Um, I I also experimented with with Substack earlier a couple of months back, Um, so. Like I wanted to, so basically I had this practice of, I I, I read a lot and uh, when I probably read a book, I, I would try to take notes of things that I find mm-hmm. interesting or valuable. Now, one fine day, so really I, yeah, mm-hmm. one fine day I thought that why not I organize all these notes that I'm taking for myself into like short book summaries or, or posts like blog posts. Um, hmm. and you know, just, just start rooting out newsletters. Um, now one, like I had two reasons for doing that. So one was that, right, like organizing those notes again would cement the, the thoughts from the book that I extracted in into my brain pretty clearly. Uh, the, another sort of motivation was, you know, to, so I know a lot of people like, probably in my circle uh, of friends who really want to read books, but they actually don't have time. Like they have hectic jobs and and everything else, or they just don't like to read books. They can't sit with a... It's
1: too much of a commitment for many people, yeah.
0: Yeah, they can't sit with a book for 30 minutes at a stretch. Um, So if I can provide those summaries to them, um, which which is like a five minute read or something, no, it won't be as good as reading the complete book it would probably like be 1% of that. But if they can get that 1% every week or every two weeks, I think it'll make some difference uh, in their lives. So this was uh, my, my sort of motivation of, of doing that. Um, and yeah, like I think it's, it's absolutely the most gratifying feeling if somebody like somebody out of those yeah. 100,000 users re- reaches out to you. You know, this is actually valuable, and it's making a difference in my life. There's nothing better than that.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And and you know, you do it. You you do it for yourself. Like just writing in general, Mm -hmm. like you talked about um, taking notes. Uh, I do that, and I find it incredibly helpful. You know, book reading without notes and reading with notes are like miles apart, right? So much more value uh, in remembering. You internalize those concepts, build mental models. Right, it's a shortcut to actually building some of these things in your in your head, in your brain. Sorry, and and uh, and yeah, I completely agree with you. Uh, the 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 only thing is, you know, there is always this dilemma as a content creator, as as uh, is that you know, are you actually doing this as a uh, as a hobby? You know, and 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 then initially you are right because you want to just put it out there and see what takes. Um but very soon, as as the number of hours and the number of commitments, the 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 level of commitment goes up, you want to make sure you want to optimize that. You know, it reaches the right sort of people. Uh, so uh, that that has been a learning for me. Uh, is you know is, but I've never uh, you know. So you can optimize that to an extent, but you cannot fundamentally change your audience. So I mean, uh, I I think I recently. Uh, Ray, uh, I recently heard a podcast about this uh, uh with uh, with uh, david perell and and he had a guest i think lynn Lynn was her name Lin okay. she and she talks about creator economy in general and mm-hmm. and you know one of the points that was mentioned in that podcast was actually about um, are you creating for your top hundred followers? Just imagine that you have five hundred followers and If you are genuinely turning their lives around out of those 500, if you're turning their lives around for 100 people, then Mm -hmm. actually she is running a course that costs like 1,000 whatever dollars and sold to 100 people is like $100,000 in revenue. So she says that, you know, that approach is far superior and a lot of people do it the other way around where they say, well, I want to grow as many people as possible. So if I have like 50,000 people on my email list, that's worth, X, you know, in terms of monetary value of that opportunity. Uh, I think I am sort of on the first camp where the value and the richness of the connection with the audience matters more than anything else. Uh, and once you've kind of perfected that, I think you can scale. However, I think, you know, one thing that I've also found is that you've got to choose your niche very carefully yeah. in the sense that you can't be super broad. Uh, if you're super broad, it might work for you, but, you know, you might, you might get frustrated fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can't be super narrow either because the audience would be too small for that kind of stuff. So you have to find your niche and it should not, like this kind of stuff is something that I live and breathe every day. So I'm, I don't, it doesn't feel like work. It feels more like, uh, more like something I really want to do. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think that is also important, right? So people should not create stuff for just the sake of creating. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, very true. I think, I think I listened to a podcast very recently, which was along the same lines. So there was this, uh, I think it was a writer. I, I really don't remember the name, but. So somebody was writing, writing a book, and he asked that, Who are you writing that book for? And uh, they they mentioned that uh, the book is for everyone. And uh, like, almost everyone can read it. And they, they were like that you're fooling yourself by believing that like, no one, no writer can write a book, which everyone can read. You have to choose your audience, you have to understand your audience and every book or every podcast or every kind of thing that is out there uh, for the public is for a specific set of audience. And the better you understand that audience, the better you can deliver upon upon that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, like, uh, I think one other important uh, but really interesting learning, again, not original, but something that I've seen a lot of people do is is talk about how you change right so when I'm changing like a newsletter format for example or when I'm when I'm making subtle changes to the kind of content I put out there I talk about it you know build in public right and you know demonstrate progress in public mm-hmm. uh, that really helps because people want to see people are not so much interested in like you know X mental because I don't think that one of my audience is just going sort to of sit there and you know digest all of my mental models. They really also yeah. want to see how I'm building this, how I'm building this concept, right? So yeah. I think that that is a really helpful insight that I've learned
0: recently. Cool, yeah. Following up on that, uh, one thing I'm really curious about because I also like recently got into the the practice of the with this pro- podcast and you know, getting to the uh, practice of creating something. Uh, what yeah. does your creative process look like, like? when you're sitting down for to you know write for yourself or for the newsletter or penning down some of your thoughts uh, so how do you approach that like do you prefer to do that in during mornings do you do you prefer having long stretch of hours to gather your thoughts and pen them down or it's something no i like, think
1: it's uh, yeah yeah i mean uh I've actually I've actually done a, a video on this and and, uh, and a, a long post as well uh, and I, I thought about it that's why I thought about it very carefully so I'll give you the gist of it right uh, mm-hmm. it's random to begin with um, okay so for example if I if I want to talk about um, let's say you know one of the other the current sort of content that I'm creating is, is called Artificial Constraints. It's uh, it's about Artificial Constraints. Uh, wow. And uh, when I was taking a walk, uh, I was thinking about something at work and how sometimes we hold ourselves back and, and that can delay our decisions or that can sometimes just completely obliterate an opportunity that you should have gone after. And okay. uh, I I just penned down that thought, you know, when I, when I was thinking about it. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and then, you know, a few hours later, I came back to it. And then I said, well, this looks like something interesting I should talk about. So the, the creative process is, firstly, when you have, and typically what I've also observed is when you're doing these kind of menial things like walking or going for a run or exercising, physical activity tends to be quite, interesting as a, as a uh, catalyst for creative thinking. But also yeah. doing menial tasks like, you know, uh, loading your dishwasher for that matter is very productive for me for some reason. Um, okay. Or cleaning up, you know, your house. As you're, you know, you will not believe this. there's a connection when you're cleaning up your room, mm. your thoughts actually begin to clear up as well. You know, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible how it works. And uh, these are the moments when you get that creative inspiration to answer your question. Yeah. What, you, what I do is I write it down there and there, but I don't sort of dwell on, dwell on it at that time because, you know, it's just not practical. But, mm-hmm. but, you know, like, for example, if I'm doing artificial constraints as a piece, um, mm-hmm. I would, uh, you know, whenever something comes to me over a course of few days, I would have right. collection of thoughts, maybe six or seven thoughts. And then I would sit down and and then try to elaborate, you know, draw connections from that, um, ask people what what are their experiences in that, and and that's how I sort of build my uh, build my content. That's my creative process. Uh, I, I would say that you know it's not something that is is methodical because mm-hmm. it can change. I mean, just to give you an example, um, I was listening to somebody yesterday, and they said that they can write the best when they're holding their phone, curled up in a blanket with, you know, really cold kind of, you know, air conditioning on in their room. <laughs> and I found that, you know, quite amusing, but quite true that, you know, I also find writing, uh, I have to be like super comfortable when I'm, I mean, not when I get the the actual tidbits that I want to write about, but when I'm editing something, when I'm elaborating on some point, connecting the dots, et cetera, i love to do it on my phone sometimes on a on a sofa you know it's just very quiet or or uh, or in bed for that matter so hey it it seems to work for me as well so i quite related to that
0: awesome that's very interesting um for me uh with regards to particularly writing because i'm i'm a fan of coffee and i've realized that i've written so I, I was like used to go to various coffee shops and sit down there with my laptop and and write for hours and hours and hours um yeah so for writing i think that that's that's my practice i'm trying to do that i'm trying to create a a similar environment at home where I'll, i'll just grab my coffee probably listen to some light music and then write um but i recently also started uh, you know, yoga and meditation. And what I realized is when I'm meditating, I like, I get certain ideas which are really valuable. Although like mm. meditation is really asks you to stop your brain and not think about stuff. But when I'm meditating, I'm getting like really good ideas, which, you know, I won't get if I'm, you know, working or probably doing some meal tasks. So I think it's it's different for everyone and probably... Like Bill Gates has this, uh, uh, he always says that he, he really enjoys doing dishes and he gets a lot of good ideas while, while doing that. So yeah, definitely. I think, I think that's, that's very interesting.
1: Yeah. Meditation is, is awesome, uh, as well. I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm not a big meditation expert, but I've tried it, tried it in a few classes and so on. Yeah. And, uh, I can certainly see, uh, how your mind actually wanders, right, and uh, exactly. especially when you're trying to go into that meditative state. And sometimes yeah. it wanders to really beautiful places. So I completely hear you.
0: True. Yep. Uh, hopefully I can do it more often and get, get more ideas out of it.
1: Yeah, keep at it, man.
0: Yeah. Cool. So that, that brings us to probably the last question of uh, which, which I really wanted to ask you with regards to the topic. Um, So one of my personal favorite articles from your newsletter was um, around uh, this topic known as asymmetric bets. Um, Can you elaborate on on that, please? I would like really like to learn more about it.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So I think it's uh, just to give you some context, you know. We're often faced with choices, right particularly with your career, you know uh, maybe you're looking for that promotion, maybe you know suddenly an opportunity shows up uh, that has got nothing to do with uh, with what you're expert at uh, or you know what 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 a typical career path is supposed to look like and uh, and then you know, like I said before, when you've gone through enough of these experiences as I have you develop some mental models. And I was reading this piece by uh, a gentleman called Eric Torenberg. And, you know, he he talks about, so this was actually his idea uh, about a symmetric bed. And it really resonated with me, primarily because that's one of the ways that I have always made my career decisions, you know, or my life decisions, uh, especially when I have to choose a radically different path. Just again, just to kind of drop an example, uh, I went from a hardcore commercial product manager to being heading up a machine learning engineering team uh, when I moved to India. And that wasn't very natural for me, right? I mean, it was, uh, well, okay, fine, you know, I've got data as a common theme across the board. Uh, But the career decision was, well, am I going to leave product management behind? Is this the right thing for me? You know, should I actually be focusing on becoming a better product manager? And mm-hmm. uh, and what I thought was, well, now let's sort of weigh this in terms of its pros and cons. And, um, you know, the peculiar thing about asymmetric bets is that, you know, it's not going to do you too much harm. So the harm is limited. Uh, you know, at the most... You may not like it, and then you move on, and I said, well, if it doesn't if it doesn't materialize in the way mm-hmm. I want it to, maybe I can just move on and do something else. But if it does, you know it could give me it could give me the much needed uh, you know career boost, or for that matter, you know it could improve my earning potential, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And in that sense the and, and such a new and such a vastly growing field as well. Uh, the upside for that is incredibly high, and it's unlimited, right? It's disproportionately higher than the downside. That's the particular okay. thing that Eric talks about, uh, you know, when it comes to asymmetric bets. And he says that when you're faced with an asymmetric bet, mm-hmm. you know, then maybe you should take it and and not uh, sort of worry about because it seems to be a an incredibly common theme across many founders many successful people when they've made their choices um you know, they have taken asymmetric bets you know take elon musk i mean elon musk is an outlier so i don't typically like to go there but take bill gates for that matter you know some of these really good uh, stalwarts you know have actually taken asymmetric bets you know there was no reason for elon to to think about you know boring tunnels underground but you know he's still doing that there's very little mm-hmm. downside to him if you think about it but the upside could be transformational for our planet right it's just it's just uh, and and i mean most for smaller people like us you know it uh, it comes down to everyday things as well you know um you know i took on a guitar lesson okay you know what's the downside maybe i will get switched off But upside is that, you know, I would be so much happy, you know, learning. So I think some of these small decisions, I think you should apply that principle uh, where possible. Ultimately, it comes down to risk and reward, you know, higher risk sometimes means, you know, extremely high rewards as well. Um, Mm. But I think the key point to learn here is not uh, the risk versus reward ratio, but it's that the downside is capped and the the upside is, you know, uh, disproportionately high
0: understood understood. Yeah, that's a very interesting uh, concept. And I think I think a lot of times we just focus on the downsides. And by just focusing on them, we kind of um, uh, what do you say, Uh, inflate the downsides by by a magnitude of like magnitude, which is which is way higher than than the probability of that happening. And I think that we miss the, the upsides of, of certain opportunities. A lot of times, um, like friends of mine or people in my network would like to, you know, transition from like, they are working at a very good role in a, in a, in a big, um, multinational company. And then they get this offer from a startup, which Mm. might have a better, might not be that uh, good of a job uh in in the near short term but if that startup grows and they they grow with the startup could be a better value proposition in in the long term but then they are you know they are doing really well in this um in their current roles they they just don't want to leave for a startup that nobody's heard about um so i think i think probably during those times asymmetric bets Framework would really come come in if you really feel value in that in that startup in that company in in that role, probably you you can take that chance because the worst that can yeah. happen is not really the worst that can happen, right? Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah I'd a, agree with
1: that. You know, especially for younger uh, people, you know, um, maybe for people with family commitments, etc. You know, that is uh, they have a slightly higher downside. I would say. But yeah, I mean, everybody's uh, life situation, you know, financial questions, et cetera, is very different. So that on that example, especially youngsters, you know, I think, uh, uh, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely spot on.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Awesome. Um, cool. So that brings us probably to the end of uh, the the main set of questions that I had for you. Um, now, I, I asked a certain uh, interesting questions to to all the guests and I have four of them prepared for you um, so these would be like Absolutely. short short questions very crisp very uh, on the spot uh, if uh, if you can get them through so the first one is uh, which book are you currently reading
1: uh, that's a simple one. So I'm almost about to finish. Hopefully today, a book called as The Range by David Epstein, uh, and uh, okay. yeah, the book is about how generalists, you know, would thrive in a world that is predominantly, you know, led by specialists all around them. It's a wonderful book. I highly recommend it.
0: Perfect. So are you are you more of a Kindle reader or you prefer hardbound pages?
1: Six Six months ago, I switched to Kindle. I've got to say, I'm a happier reader, hmm. primarily because it's just so accessible and uh, and. But I love my I love my physical books as well. I've got plenty of them. I've got a special connection with them, uh, okay. and I just love the smell of them. And you know, just yeah, there's something different about. But these days, I think just just the the convenience of a Kindle is. Uh, so what I do is I typically we we'll start with something for example range i love mm-hmm. so much i'm going to buy the book and keep okay. it in my collection same for atomic habits and a few others that i've read uh, and yeah i buy it if i if i love it so much i love to gift books i love uh, you know reading as well to people
0: yeah awesome awesome i was uh, today only i was listening to this podcast uh, uh i think shane parish uh who was interviewing Nawal Ravikant and he says that yeah. uh, he, like, Nawal likes to keep multiple copies of his of the books that he like all around his house so that every time you know he's somewhere and he has 15-20 minutes free, he can just grab that and read it again, which was really interesting.
1: Yeah, man. Yeah, that guy is a legend.
0: Yeah. Uh, cool. So um, the second question is um, like when you're not like working, reading, writing, or doing any of that intellectual stuff, like what do you generally do to, you know, unwind and re- re-energize yourself?
1: Uh, I do, uh, I do a lot of things. Well, before coronavirus hit us, uh, I love traveling. Uh, I've been okay. to over 27 different countries. Uh, my goal was to, to do 50 by the time I'm 40 or 45, uh, it was, but, you know, it's uh, that doesn't look very achievable now because of, you know, the COVID thing. Maybe maybe it will be, I don't know. Uh, but, mm-hmm. yeah, I love traveling. Uh, love experiencing different cultures. Uh, I play a bit of guitar. I think, you know, I play a few musical instruments, actually. I play uh, keyboard. I'm not an expert at any of them, but I can play a few songs on all of them. Flute, um, harmonica a little bit. Uh, and, uh, and, yeah, I mean... Um, music unwinds me like nothing else, playing music not mm-hmm. listening to because it's a, it's a more active process, you know, thinking of yeah. talking of, you know Daniel Kahneman's book uh, you know, I think that is a really important uh, unwinding exercise for me love walking uh, as well and uh, yeah I mean, uh, that's, those are the few things that I would call out now
0: Awesome, awesome that's that's very interesting. Um, I love going on walks as well. It's probably one of the best ways for me to unwind and uh, really like if I'm if I'm facing a, a kind of a mental dilemma or, or something like that I'll probably totally. go for a really long walk and I'll, yeah. I'll walk until I, I can get that resolved. Uh, I don't care if it's like I 30 minutes, it. 45 minutes or two hours and totally. once that's resolved I, I'll come back home and yeah, with a clearer mind. So that's that's great.
1: That's a mental model right there. It's uh, it's amazing. Uh, I completely agree with you. There is nothing that a really good walk cannot solve. Uh, you know, in your head.
0: So, yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I love it.
0: Awesome. Uh, yeah. So the third question is, what advice would you like to give a twenty-two, a twenty twenty-two year old um, who's who's just starting their professional career, professional journey, and probably leaning towards ai and ml because that's kind of that hot topic right now
1: yeah um, i would tell them to to rethink their uh, their you know direction uh, i mean sorry i don't mean it in a flippant way i think it, we are going to need incredibly talented people in this field over the course of next few years but a lot of people tend to go to ai and machine learning to uh, because it's so hyped up, right? You know, it's the uh, it's the next biggest thing, uh, and it it has been and it will be for next you know few years to come. But at the same time, I think you know the uh, like I said before, you know, I compare ML to databases. You know how they were in 1960s. There's lots of growth. There's lots of you know things to do. But at the same time, uh, you know, uh, just a machine learning engineer, and I've seen this trend before, where you know you have specialist courses, training people on AI, learning, mm-hmm. training them how to build models, for example, or teaching them Python, for example, and then and then playing with data sets. And, and I think that's the core part of actually building models and building predictive machines. Mm-hmm. I think that's very soon going to be replaced by machines. Um, okay. What will matter actually is your fundamentals of data, your fundamentals of the domain that you're working in. For example, if you're working in marketing, the more, the more better you understand marketing, the better you will be able to apply machine learning right? and, and create value. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a hardcore techie, you know, um, I would think about things like, can I actually build a model that can run more efficiently than any other model that is run in the firm. And that requires knowledge of cloud, that requires knowledge of networking, that, you know, so many other things and disciplines of computer science. Uh, And a lot of, of, you know, so-called, and I don't mean this with disrespect, but a lot of specialists actually lack that breadth, um, which I think is going to be incredibly important when they grow in their careers. So. Uh, and you know, taking a leap from the book that I'm reading right now, you know, the range, right? Mm-hmm. I think the people actually who are training on AI and ML, and starting their professional journey, should certainly study ML, you know, specialize in that, you know, be, uh, you know, totally kind of worthwhile pursuing as a goal. But mm-hmm. they should look to get some range in in domain, uh, so you know do your thing right maybe you're passionate about cloud so maybe ml coupled with you know amazing knowledge of cloud or maybe domain such as marketing or customer service you know and every everybody who's worked for a few years or for that matter even young professionals would have something that they feel passionately about i think they should try to it's a a combinator it's a combinatorial kind of a discipline where you can add value and mm-hmm. the name data scientist sort of says itself right uh, a scientist has to count on many disciplines of science in order mm-hmm. to make a meaningful impact uh, same is true for this field uh, I don't claim to be an expert I've been doing this for about roughly 3-4 years now but I've I've seen and I've dealt with analytics for most of my career and I can mm-hmm. tell you that uh, you know um, if you have bread and if you've got some specialist skills um, mm-hmm. you are going to be unstoppable so you know try to get that
0: bread awesome that's a very interesting perspective to to look at it. Um, i i i was recently introduced to this concept of first principles thinking um although it, yeah. it is it is a it is a basic concept but uh, i never knew it is called this before i uh, i read that elon musk book so like Elon Musk uh, is a first principle thinker in, in, uh, in practice. So I think, as you said, you know, focusing on those core marketing concepts, if you're a marketer or focusing on what drives good customer service, if you're into customer service, and then linking it with the advancement within uh, artificial intelligence or machine learning is probably what, what should people look at. Um, that's very interesting.
1: Um, yeah, I
0: know. I, yeah. I completely agree. Awesome. Cool. So this brings us to the last uh, question of, of the episode. Um, pretty interesting. So who would you like to see in the future episodes of this podcast? Like any personality, like living or dead, whom do you think I should uh, or should have interviewed in the podcast according to you?
1: Um. I have so. Firstly, you know the reason I, uh, I mean I, I've listened to all the episodes of your podcast, mm. and I love the concept because you have explicitly tried to bridge technology and and uh, the applications, right, to the business side of it as well. Uh, mm. And I feel that is very, it's a very niche area because. A lot of people talk about it. Like, you know, I've seen a lot of engineers in my my peers, my juniors my seniors saying that I would like to be techno-functional. And, mm-hmm. you know, people say that a lot. Um, but not everyone appreciates what that means, right? And what I what I mean by that is you're required to actually get the, the breadth, again, going back to the previous point, you're required to have that breadth which can be only um, uh, only uh, be experienced when you're actually cutting across different types of roles in your career. So I would love for you to uh, invite people who have made that kind of a shift in their, in their careers. Um, you know, someone like, for example, I mean, to be honest, there is quite a few of those. Uh, if you look at Sundar Pichai, for example, if I were to just hypothetically name an individual, Was a hardcore technical guy, very into products, and now is leading business uh, for for Google. And somebody like that uh, would be my first choice because you know, it's just fascinating how they have straddled both the worlds of technology and business. Uh, You know, I've been very lucky to have done that in my career as well. Uh, Mm -hmm. Miles to go, but you know, uh, I consider myself lucky. And the other person that I have, which is more of a wild card for you, is yeah. uh, there's a gentleman called Sir Patrick Stewart. He's uh, he's famous for his role. He's an actor. He's uh, very old and and very talented. And he plays uh, Captain John Luke Picard on on Star Trek uh, series, uh, particularly oh, Star Trek Enterprise franchise, and. Um, He's into a sci-fi genre, which is, which is fairly technical, but mm-hmm. the kind of leadership lessons that the guy demonstrates in his acting, in his uh, his demeanor, and he has got, there is a series called a Picard on, on Amazon Prime, which okay. just finished a, a season, and mm-hmm. it's just incredible. I'd love to see him share his leadership lessons on your podcast.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Cool. I'll I'll take note of uh, those names, and if I <laughs> if I if my podcast reaches that scale and I'm able to invite them, that'll be that'll be great. I think these are incredible names. I'll be yeah, honored more to, power have to you, them. man.
1: I wish. I look forward to. I look forward to that day. But hey, we're all we're all allowed to dream, aren't
0: we? Yeah, definitely. Awesome. So it was it was a pleasure uh, talking to you, Abinandan. Uh, thanks for taking of the time to do that i know you are super busy with your schedules uh, these days but i really value your time um if it was not up to the time we uh, could have carried out this for hours and hours but uh, let's wrap this up and uh, really thanks thanks so much for for being on the show It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for
1: having me. Uh, I really, really, really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, It did not feel like I'm recording a podcast, but it was more of a conversation. As I said before, there are very few people that I can intelligently, you know, sort of intellectually connect with. And uh, I think uh, the audience of your podcast is going to be certainly uh, an awesome set of people that I would want to connect with. uh, Certainly a topic that is very close to my heart. Thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure.
0: No, that's that's great. Um, and just carry on that great work you're doing with, with the newsletter and all these videos on LinkedIn, Twitter, and everywhere else. Uh, keeps inspiring people. Um, uh, that'd be great. Cool. Best of luck.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Kinshuk. Nice to nice to be here. Thanks. Bye-bye.
0: Bye bye. Bye. Hey listeners, thank you for tuning into At Intellect. You can reach out to Abhinandan using the links present in the show notes below. Also, if you have any thoughts, comments, or feedback about this episode or the podcast in general, feel free to reach out on at intellect at the rate That is, at intellect at the rate gmail.com. Until next time, peace.